the wolf was the predator. And so I think when you look at how you humans today interact with the landscape, like we kind of have to look at ourselves as filling that same ecological niche that the wolf would have done. Um, and I think there's, you know, if we want to talk about it, there's an interesting kind of battle that plays out in political circles and social circles of kind of pro-wolf, anti-wolf or pro-predator, anti-predator. But we have to manage them like we do are managing the other species because we are so involved in these ecosystems, we can't ignore our role. This is preservation is not an option anymore. Conservation in most places is the only path forward. And we've got to actively manage not only prey populations through hunting, but predator populations. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. Welcome back, my friends. Let's plant our seeds, grow our roots, and connect back to the soil systems from which we are created and which allow us to enjoy this gift of life. Today, we begin a journey into the uncharted conversations around hunting and specifically how our relationship to wild sources of nutrition has changed throughout human evolution. From taking only what we needed in the form of subsistence hunting to the darkest history of what market hunting looks like, to a complex and misoften understood form of trophy hunting, and perhaps to a brighter future in which hunting is an important tool in conservation. As we embark upon this journey, we wish to awaken something inside you that is seeking a deeper connection to nature and the reality that in order for you to live, something has to die. Whether or not you consider yourself a hunter is irrelevant for enjoying this episode. These are insights and stories about how humans have survived on this planet through the millennia. And what is shaping up to be maybe a three or four part series? Let's dive into this topic like a bald eagle bombing into the Great Lakes with the intention to harvest great sources of energy. And when I say energy, I speak of a nice, juicy, fat, plump, cold water trout. Let's get it. Okay, Marshall Seedorf, the man, the myth, the legend is in the house. Um, when I think of a Marshall Seedorf, I think of a conservationist. I think of a modern huntsman. I think of a man that got sick eating bear meat that was undercooked. But I also think of a man that identifies as a man who doesn't spend very much money at the grocery store, uh, buying meat specifically, and not because you're vegetarian, but because you harvested it yourself. What else did I miss on your, your intro here? Oh, I think I think you covered it. I think the uh, getting sit, sick from eating bear meat is a black eye that's going to live on with me for a long time, especially for a guy who sells meat from a living, for a living. It's a badge of honor, but I didn't even tell you that was a test of of uh, of your identity, and you you kind of failed the test. But it's okay; you can re redeem yourself. Oh, because starting out with some work to do. All right, but Mar Marshall Seedorf is also uh, a husband of one, father of two sweet little girls, and. What color is your blood? If it was three colors, what color would you bleed? Red-blooded American all day long. See, that's what I'm talking about. This boy's a patriot. 
So um, Marshall is also, did I mention you're the director of sales at Force of Nature? You did not. <laughs> Come on, man. That's, I failed the test as well. So from here on out, we got to make up for that. So the reason that I wanted to bring you on the podcast today is because I had this idea to do a three, maybe four part series, still undecided about hunting. And specifically with you, I want to talk about the evolution of hunting. So where we began, look back maybe 200,000 years, all the way to modern time, how hunting has changed the different iterations and some of the driving factors uh, that created that change. And before we dive into that interesting conversation, a couple of things I want to just point out that uh, we are in season two of Where Hope Grows, and I promised um, our audience that we were going to level up these recordings. And I think today we have officially leveled up because the last time I talked to Marshall, we were in his house doing a, a podcast recording in his, in his home, and we, we had all these awesome ideas and none of them really turned out. We actually tried to do video but it was an epic fail. But this time we have video crew, professional crew, got a crew running audio. So as a listener, this is the first time you can actually watch this live recording. I don't know why you would want to watch it, but I'll give you one. Um, I know people do watch these things. And so I will, I will dare someone to watch this because I will say Marshall is a, a good looking, pretty handsome man. And uh, he looks like maybe the love child of Alan Jackson in his heyday. When was Chattahoochee recorded? Early to mid-90s. Yes, early mid-90s. Marshall could have been the stunt double for the uh, water skiing scene there where Alan Jackson is um, being pulled behind a boat on a lake with a cowboy hat on and he, and he wipes out. So I dare you to watch this video. Tell me what you think about Marshall. Tell me how he looks and uh, let's go from there. Let's dive into this thing. Are you ready? Yeah, well, for for a boy born and raised in North Georgia, a huge Alan Jackson fan, there couldn't be a better compliment. So we're starting out, we're redeeming the introduction pretty quickly. <laughs> Great. Um, we could talk about that all day, but we got we to gotta stick to hunting right now. So tell me a little bit about your journey into hunting, how it's evolved over time to where now you are this modern, enlightened huntsman. Yeah, so I think... My journey into hunting is different, but similar to a lot of people who consider themselves avid hunters. I think the traditional route for for people, mostly men these days, to get into hunting is through their fathers. And you kind of get into the style of hunting that your father shepherded you along on since you were a little kid. Well, my dad didn't really hunt growing up. Um, he got into it as I got into it, kind of in, you know middle school, high school, through his own business practices, actually here in Texas. He kind of got into bird hunting a little bit and never got into big game hunting. But my uncle is probably the most responsible person for, for getting me into hunting. Uh, and he's actually from Northern California. So I grew up in Georgia. He is in Northern California. I have a really small family. So we actually spent a lot of time with him growing up. And when I was in middle school, he took me hunting for the first time. He took me duck hunting. And Immediately from the first experience, even like the waking up and the hype of like going to this unknown place and bad weather and we're doing this thing that he kind of prepared me for with, you know, going shooting and, you know, getting me prepared from that sense. It was like the most epic thing I'd ever done to the point that I was angry with my parents about like hiding this part of our culture from me and hiding the, like the celebration of what my uncle does is like the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my whole life. And so from my first trip hunting with him, hunting ducks when I was in middle school, I knew I was like 
my life was changed forever. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure out how to incorporate this in my life. And I'm going to do more of it every year if possible. And so he is an avid conservationist. He's probably the biggest bird nerd you, you'll ever find. Um, he's like an influencer in the bird nerd world on Instagram and social media. Um, and so he kind of coupled the, the conservation elements of hunting for me from the onset, right? Like we were identifying not only the ducks we were hunting, but every bird that flew by. And he was telling me cool things about it, about the hawks, about the dynamic between hawks and you know, different types of birds and wildlife. And I, I was hooked. And so hooked into bird hunting that way, you know, went back to Georgia, started to realize there's not a whole lot of duck hunting in the Southeast. It's, you know, hit or miss. You get up at three in the morning to go try and kill a, a wood duck or two. And that's a success, successful day, but it, it's fun. Uh, but I saw an opportunity. I was like, Hey, there's a lot of white-tailed deer around here. Um, and so one of my best, I played baseball growing up. One of my best buddies, his name is Andrew Jones. Um, he was a pitcher on our high school baseball team, my freshman year of high school. He's a sophomore. We were talking and I realized he was a big hunter. I was like, oh man, this is, this is my guy. We're going to be friends. Uh, and his family had some pine tree plantations in Georgia and we grew up duck hunting on the swamps on those properties. And then he really taught me how to deer hunt uh, and took me along on whitetail hunts, killed my first handful of deer hunting with him, uh, and just fell in love with that side of the the I call it a sport, but just a lifestyle, uh, even more when I realized you could, you know, harvest a hundred plus pound, pound animal, get it processed and turn that into food for months. Um, in a nutshell, I think that kind of encapsulates my journey. You know, since I've gotten older, I've gotten really into Western big game hunting and kind of the DIY, do it yourself, public land, get out and connect with wild places and wild things. And that sense of danger, just like it makes you feel alive. So going to places to hunt that you're encountering animals in their natural habitat, their natural ecosystem, living their life as nature, as God intended it, and trying to intercept them in that process to me is the ultimate thrill. Very cool, man. So one, one part of your journey that I admire is, you know, your uncle instilled some, some values in you and a love of this lifestyle of sustaining your, your yourself, your family off of the natural resources that, that are gifted to us. And you have guided out at Rome Ranch. So now you're at a point in your life where you're actually teaching other people, many, many circumstances, first time hunters, how to get out there, how to do it the right way. Um, so not necessarily sitting in a blind, crushing a 24 pack of, of Bud Light and just sitting there just to maybe like take out some prime cut, but you were teaching reverence, respect, patience, old school hunting techniques. So I really admire that. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you to maybe elaborate on is when you're guiding, you're taking in specifically a new hunter and maybe they have that opportunity to harvest their first deer. What is, what, what is your ceremony? Cause I know you have a ceremony. I've never seen you do the ceremony, but I've seen the after effect. I've seen the war paint. What's going yeah. on? So I'll get to the war paint, but maybe just perspective on why I like to guide. You know, I think hunters, we have a PR problem like that. The guy you talked about crushing a 24 pack and just shooting a giant buck and cutting out the back straps and putting it on his wall. That's what most Americans think about when they think about a hunter. And to me, that doesn't encapsulate at all how I feel about 
you know, the, the lifestyle, the passion, the sport that it is, it's, it is truly a lifestyle. It's a way to feed your family. It's a way to connect with nature and it's a way to be participate in what I believe is the most foundational part of the human experience of harvesting your own food and connecting with the ecosystem around you. And so, you know, getting back to guiding in that kind of ritual, I love taking people on their first hunt and shepherding them through it in the right way so they can really connect with nature. I point out all the nerdy bird species and tree species and help them understand how it all works together. But when they are successful in harvesting their first animal, there was a tradition bestowed upon me when I shot my first deer in Georgia with with my buddy I just told you about by his uncle. He was like, you got to paint your face with the blood. It's just bad luck. You'll never shoot another deer if you don't do it. And, and this was laid on me as I'm standing over the first deer I ever killed, a white-tailed doe. And so I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I got to do it. So, you know, reach your hand in there, you paint your face, you take the picture and you kind of move on. But as I've gotten older, that tradition has become really important to me. And, and here's why, you know, I think the disconnect between people and where their food comes from is huge. And when you have the opportunity to share in that experience for the first time with someone who's never done it before, they, they have kind of like a hands-off, scared to touch it kind of idea about the whole situation. Like they're engaged, they're excited about it, but all of a sudden there's a dead animal in front of them that they're responsible for. And as the guide, a lot of times it's on you to kind of take care of it for, from then on. But I don't really like that. You know, they, they are the responsible party as much as I am. And so I think as much as it's ceremonial and kind of a hunting tradition to paint your face with the blood, it also breaks a huge barrier. It's like, no, you're going to get in here and get your hands dirty because you're responsible for what just happened. And then it kind of opens up to like getting them involved with the butchery process, depending on, you know, the relationship I have with the client. I even like to sit there and kind of have like a, almost like a moment of prayer or silence over the animal before we do that. You know, like, let's respect this. Let's talk about this thing that just happened. Yes. Let's take the picture in the most respectful way, but like in taking that picture, let's really represent this whole experience that you just had and share it so that we can kind of correct this PR problem that we have as hunters. Absolutely. You know, you, you've been out to some of the bison harvest, the field harvest, the community field harvest out at Rome Ranch. And our version of that tradition is uh, after we cut the throat of the animal, it bleeds out. People will go up, uh, touch the blood, drink it. You know, they didn't, they didn't wake up that morning thinking they would ever do that in their entire life. But in the moment, it just feels so right. Um, and I think in, in my experience, it's like the first time someone sees an animal transition into death, it's so overwhelming. They're already at their um, emotional limits and cir- circumstances. Like people will be tearing up. Some people will be flat out crying. It's not tears of sorrow or sadness or guilt. It's typically a re- emotional release of happiness and joy and connection. But it's like you're just so overwhelmed that it's easy to shut down and to kind of go numb. And so I think the second that you put that blood on your hunter's face, it's like, it's like that slap in the face to wake up, like get back, get grounded. This is where we are. And moving forward again, like be, be very mindful. You're going to wear this animal because it was a gift bestowed upon you. So I, I really respect that you do that. Now, from kind of an outside perspective, what do you say to someone who says, you know, Marshall, I don't, I don't get you, which let's admit it. You're a little, you're a little odd, but I think we're all a a odd. Um, but they say, Marshall, 
let me get this straight. You work for a meat company. You have access to force of nature meats at any given point in time, yet you're still out here hunting. Why, why are you doing that? Why don't you just go to the grocery store like a normal person? And maybe even you've heard people say like, go to the grocery store like a normal humane person and take an animal or eat an animal that was that lived a good life. Um, what do you say to that person? Why, why do you decide not to go to the grocery store and instead harvest your own meat? Yeah, I mean, I think, number one, I think meat is a foundational part of the human diet and the human experience and the connection to the animal that provides that meat. And I think when you just take it from a grocery store shelf, you're super disconnected from that experience, right? And I think people have their blinders on. And, and part of the reason we kind of got to the state of the industry we're in today is because people just decided, I don't want to know. I want it in a pretty little package and I want to, you know, buy it for as cheap as possible off the store shelf. And I think when people wake up and realize that no matter if you're a hunter and you're the one releasing the arrow or pulling the trigger, or you're the one, you know, scanning it at the register, you are equally responsible for the death of an animal. And so for me, you know, hunting is a deep connection to that process. I love the idea that the animals that I eat lived the life that they were intended to live right until the moment they were harvested. And I love supporting the larger conservation efforts behind restoring wildlife species and participating in that system. That said, I also work for a meat company and I sell meat for a living. The reason I do that and I care so much about it is because I don't ne necessarily think it's possible or realistic that everyone could harvest their own meat. I think for a lot of people, going to the grocery store is the best option for them. And I'd like to work for a meat company and do work for a meat company that provides the best opportunity for them to buy meat at the store that provides a life for the animal and a management style of an ecosystem that most correlates to a natural cycle where that animal lives out its natural tendencies and provides places for, for wildlife Absolutely. in the system. So let me ask you this. So would you be in favor of some kind of um, code of ethics where if you're an omnivore or carnivore, where if you make that conscious decision, like you said, everyone's pulling the trigger, uh, would you be in favor of some kind of uh, maybe rite of passage where if you eat meat, you consume meat, doesn't matter if you buy it at the grocery store, if you buy it from Force Nature, you order it online, you go to your restaurant. What if there was a process in which you had to show a little identification card that said, I have either harvested my own meat before, or I have participated and witnessed the harvesting of meat, just in the sense that that connects that person and that grounds that person to the reality of the cycle of life. It takes life to sustain life and so forth. I like the idea. I, I would be very skeptical about the management of that from a government perspective, but from a, like a more of a independent perspective, like you look at 4-H programs, you look at FFA programs, that's where that experience happens for a lot of people. You know, you look at the ranch manager at Rome, James, you know, he came to caring about agriculture through those types of programs in schools. And I think if we could prioritize that as a country to bring that back to the educational system of connecting people to their food, where whether it's a chicken or a rabbit or a turkey or a sheep or a pig, like give school children a place to raise animals and then ultimately participate in the harvesting of those animals that's a life experience, right? They'll never look at the grocery store the same again. And if that's a good experience for them, it could change their whole value system. So that's what I would be in favor of. So you've, you've brought your family out to 
witness a bison harvest, and I'm sure you've brought your little girls hunting too. Um, I think people, when they're hearing you talk about having kids raise an animal and have a relationship with that animal only to harvest that animal, that somehow that would be emotionally traumatizing. But in your experience with the children that you have observed witnessing this, is it traumatizing? What kind of emotions come up in those kids? You know, it's really interesting when you expose kids at an early age to call it like the cycle of life, it seems natural to them and they understand it, right? It doesn't discount the fact they may develop a relationship with certain animals, but they understand the role that they play in their life. I think the, the disconnect is when kids don't understand that throughout their childhood and into their adult years, and then they're exposed to it in adulthood. It's shocking. But when you think about the human experience, like that's who we are, right? Like we are predators on the landscape. We have been for hundreds of thousands of years in different parts of the world. And that is a modern day challenge. You know, that, that shock and awe of a, a, really an adult seeing an animal die is something that is a new phenomenon over the last couple hundred years. Fair enough. We're here today because our ancestors were probably very talented hunters. Correct. Um, you know, like when, when I think about raising kids and even just trying to become a better person myself, I think that living a life where you really express the highest level of gratitude in your everyday actions is one of those keys to happiness. And I just feel like this idea of a child witnessing the sacrifice of an animal to feed that child and, and it's his, his or her loved ones, his or her family, that is just like this ultimate ex opportunity to experience gratitude at the fullest level. I mean, I can't think of another way, uh, like almost more of an intimate act to connect with Mother Nature and that experience gratitude than participating in an animal giving its life to sustain your body. It gives them real responsibility too. You know, whether it's a wild animal that they're involved in harvesting or, a, you know, an animal raised on a farm, like they have responsibility. And that's like, we all seek things that we like are responsible for, right? And giving to that to them at an early age, it helps create a grounded human in my personal view. Absolutely. And, and one of the biggest challenges, I mean, one of the questions that we get all the time that really just pisses me off is like this idea of like, how can we feed a growing population? You know, like, can, can you really do that eating meat? Can you do that with a regenerative system? And, and that's for another day. But food waste is such an important issue. And it's something, you know, I believe it's like 40% of all food in the United States is thrown away. And so that in itself is a desecration. Um, and I think the act of that is a separation from source. It's a separation from that connection to land, to animals, and to plants as that cycle of life like you've, you've spoken to. So I think, you know, once you witness an animal sacrifice itself, and then you take ownership of that and the responsibility of that animal, but say you only eat 60% of that animal, you should, you should be embarrassed. Like if that really sinks in, um, again, that's not a sacred act. That is not a connection to nature, but rather that's an, an insult to the greater system. Oh yeah. I go to extensive lengths to not waste meats and parts from animals I harvest to the point that I've gotten to be pretty good at cooking meat. And in the rare instance that I'll have someone over to my house and they leave meat on their plate that from an animal I harvested in particular, which is basically all we eat at my house, 
I'll start eating off their plate. More more to just like make a point of like, this isn't going to go to waste than anything else. Is that how you uh, judge a, a person's character? <laughs> they waste meat? Yeah. It's on the list for sure. Fair enough. I'm, I'm with you, man. Um, okay. So let's get into the, to the meat and potatoes here, which I don't even honestly like that expression. You know how people say like, let's get into the bread and butter or meat and potatoes. I, I mean, sorry. I think bread is pretty lame if you're going to get into the heart of something. So let's combine the two. Let's say, let's get into the, the meat and butter of the conversation, which is an inevitable transition to where I really want to land and spend most time on, which is conservation hunting. And so in order to do that, I want to talk about, um, spend some time talking about how we got to where we are. Let's revisit the history, the evolution of our hunting history. Um, on our first stop, I think it's appropriate to talk about uh, subsistence hunting, which I looked up the definition of subsistence hunting, and it is hunting the action of maintaining or supporting oneself at a minimal level. So I think about that as like you take what you need to sustain your life and the, the basic fundamental requirements of your family and you do not take more. Um, and so I think right now in human history, we are used to the modern comforts of what it means to be alive. And, and for the past 200,000 years, things have been much more difficult. Um, the root of most sickness, as we know, is malnutrition. So it's calorie deficit or just eating foods that make you uh, ill, which leads to susceptibility for bacteria, virus, different diseases. And so food is just such an important part of the human experience. So kind of from a, a subsistence hunting perspective, can you can you tell me a little bit about that? In terms of my view on it or? Yeah, let's just dive into like what 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 do you think of when we look back at our subsistence hunting history? What, what pops into your mind? What images does that conjure? Well, I'm very interested in the history of this continent and how it was settled and how people lived here for the last, call it 20,000 years. You know, at the end of the last ice age, you know, is roughly when they think that humans migrated into North America. And, you know, until European settlers arrived here, we're living largely nomadic lifestyles, following herds of game animals across the continent and living their entire lives off of those harvests, whether it was the hides for the clothing or their structures or the meat to, you know, subsist on. That was their way of life, right? And there's a lot you could talk about there, but that was the life they knew. That was their human experience. And I think the idea of plentiful resources and you talk about going to the grocery store and just having meat be on the shelf was, this is a new phenomenon again, right? And so I think Native Americans were incredible stewards of what they had and using the resources that they had. But I think that plentiful resource was something they probably didn't see. You know, it was opportunistic it's like, hey, we've got to harvest this now because tomorrow it might not be here. And, you know, they perfected different ways of, of harvesting animals and living off the land that we could learn a lot from uh, in our modern culture and ways of honoring those animals and celebrating them as an important part of their life. Yep. That's a huge disconnect for us today. 
I think um, my mind definitely goes to First Nation people, indigenous people, when I think of subsistence hunting as well. However, you know, like this idea that um, that these first people were nomadic because they had a greater understanding of how to rest landscapes and, and restore it. So it came back better and better. I think this is this romantic view of why tribes were nomadic, but I think in reality, they were nomadic because they would extract the resources from a given location to the point at which they looked around and said, it's time to move. Absolutely. There's nothing yes. to eat. Uh, but that did work with the cycles of nature that did inadvertently provide that rest. But I, I, I always wonder if that was the true kind of architecture and the long-term vision of those people. And then the second thing that when I think about subsistence hunting, it was just maximum utilization of the animal. I mean, true nose to tail, right? Largely out of desperation, right? Like I think they had respect and reverence, but I think they also, they realized that tomorrow was not a given, right? Like what you had in front of you today was the only certainty you had in life. So you better take everything from that resource that you can get because tomorrow is not a guarantee. Yep. I also, I mean, humans are predators, right? There's a lot of parallels between the way humans interacted with animals across our continent and wolves, right? You know, where tribes had strongholds, call them camps, you know, those areas around the camps were the hardest hunted out of convenience, right? And then you had the separation between different tribes and the areas in between that were largely unsettled that were seldomly hunted because they were in conflict, right? If you went over there and crossed a border, you were at war with another tribe. And those in-between areas were where wildlife flourished because they weren't being predated by humans like they were close to camp. It's the same with wolves, you know, in den sites. You're close to the den site, you're not going to find a herd of elk just, you know, wandering around aimlessly, you know, enjoying their laurels. You know, you're going to find the dense populations on the outskirts where the wolves are in conflict with each other and seldomly venture. Yes. Yeah, that's great, man. Then, and I th also think about kind of like with the wolf example, the subsistence hunting is what works in a wild setting. And almost a way to think about it, it's like, this is the hunting that was done by our ancestors before the industrial revolution, before the centralization of, of people and they move from small rural areas into cities. And, you know, again, like, the indigenous knew this, but I think the early pioneer European settlers also knew this. And it's something that we don't talk about. Um, have you been out to the, the Sour Beckman living history farm? No, out, tell me about out it. Out where we live. Man, you got to take your family next time you're in the hood. But it is a living reenactment farm. Uh, it's a Texas State Parks uh, effort. And so it's, a, it's an authentic German settlement based on what was happening in the 1840s through 1880s. And uh, I mean, when you get there, you quickly recognize that much like, you know, I think something like 90% of Texas is not conducive for plant-based agriculture, uh, including the area where we live. Uh, so they had their little garden, they had some chickens, they had, you know, a pig or some sheep or goats or something like that, um, a cow for milk. But the primary resource of their diet was, was harvesting wild game. And I think in that context, in that setting, those early settlers, when they would harvest meat to feed their family, in the back of their mind, they, they, they had to say, my children will inherit this land and their children will inherit this land. So if I take too much, then I am basically stealing from my children and my grandchildren's future. And so I think that was just 
that was hardwired into the human state and the human condition until, again, Industrial Revolution kind of changed everything. Is there anything else you want to you touch on with uh, subs, subsistence hunting? I don't think so. You know, getting in the Industrial revolu- Revolution, that created the market hunting opportunity. Let's go there. Yeah, you're right, sir. This is the transition. This shifted everything. So let me read the, the, uh, the definition here of the market hunting. So uh, a market hunter is a person who hunts wild animals or game for a livelihood. Um, I think this is a great transition. And so something you're very passionate about, can you tell me a story or something relevant to North American history with market hunting um, in retrospect, how maybe it uh, changed how we co-created with landscapes and inadvertently I can't think of a really good example of market hunting not decimating an ecosystem, but maybe you can prove me wrong. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can talk about market hunting on this continent without talking about the example of the buffalo. That really is the example of all of our wildlife species, especially the ruminants. Um, But I mean, the market hunt of the 1870s, 1880s was a perfect storm of different factors. You had a post-Civil War era of a lot of folks coming out of the military, north and south, with artillery, firearm experience, looking for a new life, troubled souls, you know, people who lost siblings, brothers, neighbors, looking to start over. You had the railroad expansion across the continent, providing a route to market. You had these guys going out, creating a new life for themselves. And ultimately, to the Buffalo's demise, you had the Industrial Revolution on the East Coast, um, figure out a way to utilize buffalo hides in place of rubber mats to turn machine belts. And so you had the soldiers, the hunters, you had the route to market, the railway, and you had the market, which was the factories on the East for the hides. And so over a course of, you know, under two decades, you had this system crop up where people made a living out of hunting day in and day out and using the resource, not as a resource to subsist on, but truly as just a resource to be extracted and utilized and capitalized with no perspective on the impact. Uh, and I think a lot of these people involved, maybe to giving them too much credit, but they had no idea about the finiteness of resource, right? They're on a new continent. They don't even really know where the end of this continent is in terms of the resources. And they just had no real context for what they were doing at the time. Again, I think I'm giving them way too much credit there because I think anyone involved in that practice day to day and to talk about the specifics of how they executed those hunts, I mean, it's gruesome. It's terrible. And they got a huge black eye after the market hunting collapsed these populations. One thing people don't talk about is Market hunters were celebrated and then they were villainized because at the same time that all of these species collapsed and were teetering on the brink of extinction, we talk about buffalo, but, you know, antelope, pronghorn antelope, deer, elk, they were all, the, same, the story could be told about all of them. They were teetering on the brink of extinction in the 1880s and our culture realized that and the market hunters were villainized. And there's this idea that the American government somehow subsidized or supported or encouraged the market hunting to drive the Indians onto reservations. Well, 
The truth is that that story was fabricated by market hunters to protect their own identity, their own who they were as people, you know, protect themselves from the narrative that they were the true villains. And specifically, there was a guy named John Cook, a Civil War soldier. He might have been a general, uh, but he was one of the the top market hunters in his day and was self-promoting himself as one of the best. And so in the collapse of the, the idea that market hunters should be celebrated and actually should be villains, he tried to flip the script. And he actually created an, a, a story that was completely fabricated that the famous General Philip Sheridan went to the Texas uh, State Senate and basically combated the idea that we should put limits on market hunting and said instead we should be celebrating and incentivizing and even paying market hunters from a government perspective. He completely fabricated that story. It never happened. General Sheridan never went to the Texas legislature on record to say anything. And in fact, is on record and recorded to say some things completely the opposite, right? Like we should probably maybe look at this and look at limiting it. And there was even an idea promoted that we should only limit bison bulls and you know, not shoot bison cows so that we could kind of protect the species. And that was all created to protect their reputation, the market hunters, which is a story that's untold in our culture today. You'll see t-shirts all the yeah. time with people quoting Philip Sheridan, promoting the idea that the government should, should support market hunters. That, that was never said. That's wild. This is blowing my mind right now. That's a, this is maybe the first, well, one of the first documented cases of hashtag fake news. It's like... Was this a vice news story back in the 1880s? Possibly. <laughs> um, but I do want to commend Marshall for using uh, buffalo and bison interchangeably because usually he's team buffalo all the way. Sometimes we, we get in discussions about that. Um, but when we're going back to like this whole idea of market hunting, uh, can you talk a little bit about the economics of what that actually looked like to be a market hunter? Um, and then maybe even like what the size of the herd was and how those numbers decreased over time. Yeah. So starting at the size of the bi the buffalo herd, because, you know, that's kind of the example we use to talk about the whole scenario. <clears throat> the estimate I'm confident with is somewhere between 20 and 40 million. We'll peg to 30 million, just kind of right in the middle. But if you look at that period of time after European contact, the natives were were decimated by disease. Um, exposed to, to disease that Europeans had dealt with for generations, but new to, to Native Americans. Um, and so Native populations, or what's called apex predators, were greatly reduced. And so anytime you have a reduction in predator size, you have an increase in prey size. And so as part of that reduction in the size of the Native American population, the, the buffalo and other species exploded in a population and probably reached that peak population of like 30 million. And then Europeans started coming across the continent, first on wagons, you know, then by rail car and contributing to the, the hunting and the kind of predation of these species, dwindled the population in coordination with natives largely, but dwindled the population down about 10 to 12 million post-Civil War. And so when you talk about the real market hunting era, you're really talking about a population that's already been significantly reduced. And so over the course of, you know, one decade, maybe two decades post-Civil War, we took Buffalo numbers from 10 to 12 million down to sub 1,000, which is incredible. 
And what was the, um, what was the economic incentive? Like, is there, can you think of it as like a, a price per hide or, or something that- Yeah. I mean, these guys going relatable? west to market hunt, they were entrepreneurs in their own right, right? You can villainize them for what they were doing and making their living off of, but they were trying to make a living. And once the industry, the factories in the East Coast realized that you could substitute a properly cured bison hide for a rubber machine belt, there was a financial incentive to send these hides back east. And I think the going figure that I've kind of pegged to is about $5 a hide. So these market hunters, they'd go out in groups, right? And you generally had only a couple shooters, but the shooters were the head, the head of the whole kind of brigade, if you will. And they had skinners tanners, salters, all kind of following along, camp cooks uh, in coordination. And they basically stack hides all day long just to be moved to a rail car, shipped back east for $5 a hide. Kind of the, the sad part of a lot of this is beyond the just the tragedy of the wildlife obliteration that happened, but a lot of these guys were dest destitute. You know, they spent... They spent more than they made and they didn't make a great living off of it. They didn't come out of this market hunt rich. There were a couple that were very successful and their names are recorded in history, but a lot of them, it was just another job. They They're went, like rappers. They got, yeah, they got back on the, the job cash. trail when the bison population fell off. Wow. Um, so $5 a hide, put yourself into the era of 1870. That doesn't sound like a lot today. But uh, I'm sure back in the day, that was pretty substantial. Oh, absolutely. What, what could $5 buy you as a man walking into a, a general store? <laughs> well, for these guys, probably a lot more ammunition. <laughs> for sure. I think at one point, I remember you telling me that, uh, you know, the going price for an acre of prime land in the United States was $5 an acre. Yeah, I think that's right. Can you imagine that? So like what kind of, yeah, market rush would happen today in the equivalent if you have, you know, like unemployment, poverty, kind of like this uh, disparity in wealth. And then if all of a sudden this natural resource opened up like tomorrow where people could, you know, if a going acre of land is $10,000 per acre, like give or take, it depends on what county and what state, but $10,000 an acre. Can you imagine in making $10,000 an acre in just a couple of minutes? And would you stop there? No, you would keep going. And so, you know, yeah, it's easy to villainize them, but if you put yourself in the mindset, um, especially the desperation of that point in time, uh, it's it's easy to understand how a tragedy like that could could get out of control. Yeah, especially without our worldview, right? Like they didn't understand the finiteness of resources. Yeah, um, you know the the happy ending to that story though is that there was an awakening, there was a call. Um, the market hunting was not allowed anymore. The few remaining bison that were intact were protected on national parks, as well as some beef cattle ranchers stepped up and really saved the herd. And so, I, you know, today, what do you know what the size of the bison herd is today? I think roughly half a million is a pretty safe place to yeah. dig it. So, I mean, going to from a couple hundred animals to half a million as an industry, collectively trying to move towards 1 million bison in North America, that's a pretty badass um, story about, you know, just the forgiveness of mother nature being greater than our own species capacity for ignorance. That fills my heart with, with hope. But um, I, I also want to take a moment to talk about an example of market hunting that 
decimated a species to the point at which it, it, it no longer recovered. Uh, have you heard of passenger pigeons? No, oh, it's a tragedy. I wish I could see them in their heyday and see the numbers. This is just unbelievable. So, you know, this is relatively new to me. This species was lost in about 1890s, but this bird population was the greatest bird population in North America, if not the world. Um, there would have been single flocks of these birds in the billions. B, billions. Um, that's unfathomable. And I have a really cool um, excerpt uh, from a man that, that you probably know named Aldo Leopold. You're but right. um, he, you know, when these birds would come in to cities, um, Aldo Leopold called them a feathered temptus. And on one account of his in 1855 in Columbus, Ohio, uh, it was described these birds as a growing cloud that blotted out the sun as it advanced towards the city. All the children were screaming and running for home. The women gathered their long skirts and ran for shelter in stores. The horses bolted. A few people mumbled frightening words about the approach of the apocalypse, and several dropped on their knees and prayed. When the flock had passed over two hours later, the town looked ghostly and now bright sunlight that illuminated a world plated with pigeon ejecta. <laughs> That's an amazing excerpt. Isn't that just so unbelievable? And, and I just have to, to give one more. So John James Audubon, who's my favorite artist of all time, did a lot of really cool portraits of the mammals of North America and the birds of North America. In 1831, um, he was just commenting on observing these passenger pigeons and trees crammed with dozens of nests apiece collectively weighing so much that branches of large mature oak trees would just crack, topple over. I mean, these are just like monster hundred-year-old trees that couldn't even support the weight of the birds and the numbers that they were landing. Um, in 1871, some hunters coming in the morning uh, saw a flock of adult males, and they were so overwhelmed by the sound of the spectacle that some of them dropped their guns and said that it sounded like a thousand threshing machines running under full headway, accompanied by many steamboats groaning off steam with an equal quota of railroad trains passing through covered bridges. Imagine these masses in a single flock and you possibly have to faint at the conception of the terrific roar. And so you just, all this stuff gives me goosebumps thinking about how powerful, I mean, like when we think about force of nature, why we named our company that it's just like, these are the images that are the force of nature images, like single flocks of animals, just absolutely changing landscapes. Um, but these birds were hunted as a market opportunity, you know, like they were collected, put in barrels, the railroad played a significant contribution to the extraction of that resource, just like the bison, how you described it, shipping it back east to feed growing populations in concentrated cities. And when these bird flocks would fly by. I mean, it didn't take much to kill them. There's stories of just people holding up brooms and killing 10, 20 birds, just holding up a broom. Um, and then eventually, you know, with like the mechanization of the efficiency of, of weaponry, machines were created to just shoot thousands of birds at, at a single point in time. It's like multiple shotguns connected together, just aiming blindly at the sky. You ever seen a market shotgun in person? No, that's, what that's is insane. it? Insane. What's it looks a, like a handheld cannon. They took two people to fire. You need to go, like, get on Google and go find where you can look at one. They're, I mean, it's incredible to look at. They, same thing you're talking about with pigeons. They did with ducks. 
you know, shooting dozens yes. of ducks at a single time. And putting them in barrels and transporting them. The interesting juxtaposition there is that the, uh, the bison were largely harvested and the meat was either discarded or only used for um, the, the mar market hunters out on the plains, whereas those animals were actually market hunted for meat to exactly. feed people. Yeah, that is interesting. Whereas a single bison could feed uh, significantly more people than <laughs> a single pigeon. So as a food resource, it should have had... Well, they just had no way it. to transport it, right? Like you That's could stuff right. the pigeons in the barrels, you know, but yeah. you can't put a bison in a barrel. Pickle them. Um, yeah, I'm going to read this. It talks about how they would harvest these animals. So it said they shot pigeons, trapped them with nets, porched their roosts, so lit the roost on fire. They asphyxiated them with burning sulfurs under trees. They attacked the birds with rakes, pitchforks, potatoes. They poisoned them with whiskey-soaked corn. Um, there was a Potawatomi leader named Pogaton, wait, Pogagon, who lamented on watching Europeans soak a tree uh, with lighter fluid and then waiting for the birds to land in the tree and just light the whole damn tree on fire and torch them all. So this is like something that is a desecration. It's something that we should be embarrassed of and we should take as an opportunity to learn from. Oh yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. It's tragic and honestly just sad. You think about what could have been and what the resources that we had on this continent. Man, if only we could go back and do it over again. If only we could do it over again. Um, so I want to be Debbie Downer. Let's let's move on. We're we're on again. Um, market hunting. Let's let's get towards another step in kind of like the evolution in our history with hunting, which has dramatically changed in the last two hundred years, as you can see. Um, this, we're going to move on towards trophy hunting. And so when I, when I think of trophy hunting and I look up that term, it is a form of hunting for sport in which parts of the animals are kept for display as trophies. Now that's kind of the working definition of a trophy hunter. So what do you, what, 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 what images conjure in your mind or stories come up whenever you think of modern trophy hunting? Ah, there's so much to unpack with the term trophy hunting because, it's weaponized against hunters, right? And the first thing I do when you say the term trophy hunting is honestly get defensive because I like a set of antlers as much as anybody. They are really cool. There are not many people that look at a set of big antlers from an elk or a deer and they're not like, man, that that's kind of cool. <laughs> I, they, I'd like one of those. What do they call house. that when you're sitting in a, like you're hunting and you see that? And you like have that visceral reaction. Is that buck fever? Or oh, buck fever, the yips, like there's all kinds of <laughs> things you can talk about there. But I mean, the trophy itself, like is the whole experience. And to me, like the, the physical trophy from the animal, whether that's a hide or the antlers, it's really just a token to remember that experience by, to respect and appreciate the animal. And ultimately to tell the story, like one of the things, and it's been a journey to get my wife on board with this, but she is now. But the cool things about having some of this in your house is the opportunity to retell those stories. You know, like a bear hide, you know, people want to ask about it. You know, they, you, you can't help yourself. You're like, where'd that come from? Tell me about that. <laughs> or a set of antlers or a deer on the wall. It's like, wow, oh, that's a cool story. Let me tell you about that. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. And, but the term, is, the term is really weaponized to, to paint a picture of someone who only cares about the antlers. Right. And I just don't think for a lot of hunters that represents the experience. Um, you know, on the flip side, I think you can talk about trophy hunting and there are a lot of things that hunters do, you know, 
that could be improved. You know, the way we look at managing wildlife, um, you know, sitting here in Texas, you just say the word trophy hunter. And I think about somebody who's getting out their tape measure to measure, measure every quarter inch on a buck and they aren't satisfied with anything under 180. And that just, it kind of devalues the whole experience to me. Like, yeah, it's cool to grow cool bucks and see big bucks and harvest big bucks, but like, it's not the whole experience. You're missing so much if that's all you care about. Uh, so I think about that. And I also think about trophy hunting internationally, right? Like, you know, do I have any interest in going overseas and hunting a lion? No. Would I love to go see a lion? Absolutely. But the trophy hunting in that capacity, despite that I might disagree with those individuals' motivations and their perspective on the world around them, the system is set up to support wildlife and the financial contribution that those hunters are making through what that is, a trophy hunt, is incredibly important to the protection of those animals at an ecosystem level, right? Like the way we are as humans, if something doesn't have value, it's not going to exist. Like we have a really hard time as a species creating places for for wildlife, for, for nature, if it doesn't provide some type of value, financial incentive. And those hunters provide that financial value for those animals so that those local governments, those local populations will tolerate and continue to perpetuate the existence of those species, those habitats, they'll protect them. It's tourism, it's dollars into the economy, it's jobs, it's all of it. And so it's hard to, it's hard to talk about trophy hunting without looking at the full picture, right? right? I think you, I think you hit on something where, yeah, it's just like the, the nomenclature is maybe not representative of everyone who wants to harvest a male animal that happens to have a nice pair of antlers that would look awesome on your wall. And, and I think, you know, by the definition of trophy hunting, which you might be leaning more towards a different definition, but it, it's truly the extraction, the harvesting of an animal to keep parts for display as trophies. And so I think what I think we'd probably both be on board with saying that I would hope I would hope so. I'm not gonna make an assumption. But if you're gonna harvest a mature breeding male just so you can only put its antlers on your wall, I'm not down with that. But if you happen to, to harvest that male, tell that story, honor it that way, but then also utilize hundred percent of its meat and its hide and whatever its bones and its organs. I don't see a problem with that because because you're you're getting the trophy aspect of that, but you're also honoring the whole animal. Does that yeah, make sense? Totally. When you think about trophy hunting, like the African model is like where my head immediately goes, right? And like while those hunters, those individuals probably largely don't utilize the meat resource outside of a couple meals in camp, like it's almost like impossible to travel back with it. In a lot of cases, it's illegal to bring the meat back. The, the whole ecosystem of that trophy hunt they do use the meat. And so like, it, while you could villainize the person, like you kind of have to look holistically at the system that's in place and how it actually supports wildlife. Yep. Yeah, and that's ultimately what is like the most important thing for me is like, how does this support wildlife and continue the perpetuation of, and creation of and protection of habitat for wildlife? Because that is the biggest threat to the, the future of hunting, to the future of wildlife is loss of habitat. Yeah. And hunters are the most intimately connected, knowledgeable, and aware that that is the threat. Dude, you're getting, you're skipping ahead. You're skipping ahead to <laughs> conservation hunting. I know we're excited to talk about that. One of the things that we've done at, at, at the ranch, uh, cause we have a guided hunting program, which you've guided 
from time to time and hunted out at our ranch. Um, we, we just, to eliminate this confusion, we, we, we stopped even calling it a trophy hunt. So like on the, on our informational package, uh, we'll just call it like, you can either hunt for meat, um, so a harvest animal, or you can hunt a dominant breeding male. Just in, and that's kind of like, um, I don't know, in my mind, it vets out the people who are going to come and they're going to ask for a certain size antler, potentially leave the rest of the animal out in the field versus someone who's like, yeah, I want to get, a, I want to get like a big dominant animal. Cause I think a dominant breeding animal, like that's going to be the highest form of energy. That's going to be the animal that's most adapted to that eco region. The animal that contains the most physical energy, spiritual energy, like that's kind of the energy that I want to consume and feed my family. And so that's kind of a, an interesting way to, to it's also think a about. challenging, like one of the things I think people don't realize when you're going after that big buck, right. Is like, it's an additional challenge. Like if you want to shoot a white-tailed doe, we could probably walk out on a Rome ranch, no feeders, just walking and shoot a white-tailed doe within about what, five minutes, 10 yeah. minutes. You might be able to strangle one. Yeah. <laughs> you walk quietly. But if you really want to create a challenge for yourself and you're going to say, okay, well, I'm interested in the top 5% of the species that are out here. Like hunting is a unique combination of like substance and sport and it's not one without the other. And so like that's something I feel like that's misunderstood. But so as a, as a, as a, just so people who maybe don't hunt or don't know about different classes of animals, if you're going to harvest an animal and, and you're like, I'm going to feed a group of my friends who are really skeptical about eating, let's just say wild game or like deer, um, what class of animal are you going to intentionally harvest to provide the best eating experience? Oh, man, my experience, like the notion is that like old bucks are kind of like tough and, you know, not worth their merit on a plate next to like a doe or something. But my experience, that's just not the case. You know, I think I've has more to do with like the individual animal and what they ate and their health and the diet that they were exposed to, but it's some of the tastiest animals I've ever eaten are like rutted up old bucks, Yeah, which like <clears throat> most people would say that's going to be the worst animal <laughs> yeah. in the world. I, I'm with you, man. I prefer honestly the taste of just an older animal in general, because I find that the longer they've been on that landscape, the more years of their life, they're just slowly collecting more of the nutritional density from the resources of that area. So yeah. And just, I think you and I have a different palate than most. Right? Yeah. Like the, I think the average American probably prefers bland meat. If I'm really being honest, like that's kind of what we've been trained in our culture is like the blander, the better put sauce on it and celebrate the sauce. And I think you and I are about <laughs> eat chicken, you know, eat the more flavor chicken. of the meat. Like let the flavor of the meat be the meal, a little salt on there to give it a little punch. But man, like we want flavorful meat. And I think that's where those older animals kind of deliver is like, we like that, that yeah. depth of flavor. And I think that depth of flavor is uh, consistent. There's a linear correlation between flavor and nutrition as well. Um, okay. So here's the exciting part, Marshall. So like we're, we've been through these different phases, dramatic changes in hunting in the last 200 years. And then we're kind of like entering this new air, this beacon of, of hope, this light, this new style of hunting. It's not necessarily new. It's We'll talk about that, but um, kind of hunting more from a conservation mindset. And so, first of all, when most people think of conservation, I think there's a, an, a reflexive feeling that 
Conservation means hands off. It means just letting the natural cycles of nature take Which that place. That would be preservation. <laughs> right. Yeah. But then they think like, okay, hold on. So you're going to tell like humans are bad. Humans equal destruction. Historically speaking, we can look at a lot of stuff. We're talking about passenger pigeons, deer, elk, uh, pronghorn, bison, a lot of bad examples of humans interfering in an in a, in a ecosystem. So they say, how can, how can you go in as a human being and hunt in a way that is good for an ecosystem? It just seems like so counterintuitive. Is that, is that right? I think absolutely. I think we've talked about our role as humans, as apex predators on the landscape. You go back to that market hunting era and, you know, post market hunt, those folks were villainized, you know? And I think 1900, we passed as a country, the first laws to make market hunting illegal. And since then, you could tell a really exciting, hopeful story about how we've recovered all of these species that were on the brink of extinction. You name the species, we can talk about how in the period between 1900 and now, I'm talking big game, we have a lot of challenged other species, but you look at big game populations when we're talking about hunting, and there's a great story to tell over the last 120 years. Um, in, in, in most ecosystems, humans have such a prevalence that we have an undeniable impact and role to play in the ecosystem. Predators, apex predators at scale don't exist in most parts of this continent. We are the apex predator. So what were the apex predators of this continent that are no longer with us? Well, it depends how far you want to go back. If you want to talk 20,000 years ago, we had short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats, all kinds of crazy animals running around here, apex predator, just messing stuff up. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> taking down big, big bison species that don't even exist anymore. But over the last 10,000 years, the the dominant predator on this continent was the wolf. Um, grizzlies played a role, <clears throat> lions play a role, coyotes play a role to some extent, but you talk big game animals, the wolf was the predator. And so I think when you look at how you humans today interact with the landscape, like we kind of have to look at ourselves as filling that same ecological niche that the wolf would have done. Um, and I think there's, you know, if we want to talk about it, there's an interesting kind of battle that plays out in political circles and social circles of kind of pro-wolf, anti-wolf or pro-predator, anti-predator. And I can see both sides of it really clearly. I mean, I love the idea of fully intact ecosystems and I think wolves and grizzlies and apex predators deserve and have a place on the landscape. I think to talk about the other side of the fence, you know, from a rancher perspective or from a lot of hunters perspective, to be quite honest, there's a huge mistrust of government, politics, social circles to manage predators effectively. And I think hunters have this idea that, okay, if we let wolves on the landscape, that's okay, but we have to manage them like we do are managing the other species because we are so involved in these ecosystems, we can't ignore our role. This is preservation is not an option anymore. Conservation in most places is the only path forward. And we've got to actively manage not only prey populations through hunting, but predator populations. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the the wolf populations historically would have ebbed and flowed too. Like if they ever got too big, then they would have 
obviously through evolution decreased the number and that would have been a proportion to the game that was available. Absolutely. You know, in the mid 1800s, they estimate that there were anywhere between about 500,000 to 1.5 million wolves on the landscape. But the places that wolves can exist on the landscape today across this country are extremely limited. You're not going to want wolves in downtown San Francisco for obvious reasons. I do. <laughs> It'd be cool for different. We'll for talk about sure. that in another podcast. It'd be a great experiment. But the reality is there are very few places left where we could truly create an intact ecosystem. And even within those, the boundaries are there, whether it's a fence, you know, a private land, like there are so many human interests on the landscape that we can't just let mother nature run its course anymore. We have a responsibility to be engaged. And the success story that we've had over the last 120 years in recovering native wildlife species, especially big game species, has been incredible. And and hunters have played the pivotal role in that. And seasons are set appropriately, you know, where areas of animals need to be recovered. There's either no hunting or hunting is limited to, to male only so that all of those reproductive females can continue to grow population in other areas of the country where animals are overpopulated. You know, hunters are encouraged to specifically target females so that we can decrease population because overpopulation is just as big of a problem for wildlife as underpopulation, right? Underpopulation obvious, right? Like we don't want to see these animals go extinct, but overpopulation is an equally terrible reality for all of these animals. You think about white-tailed deer, even in central Texas right now. I mean, it's, it hasn't rained in what, two months. Mm -hmm. It's been 105 every day. I mean, I look at deer in my yard and I feel bad for them. They're starving. The resources for them are non-existent when you, whether it's food or water or habitat, Without the apex predator, the wolf, to control their population, the limiting factor largely is starvation. And that is awful. And But the reality is that that reality for them of starvation occurs out of sight. Mm-hmm. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. And it's easy for people to just ignore it, right? Like hunting human engagement, killing an animal is it's out in front of people, right? Like you have to kind of confront that idea and and realize the human role in it to be okay with it. And that takes, like, it goes back to like those experiences we started off talking about, about FFA and growing up with kids, raising animals and understanding the cycle of life and our role in the ecosystem. Without that perspective, then it's really, it's really easy to see how someone could say, okay, well, let's just not participate. But the reality of non-participation is equally, not equally, it is very tragic. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to read you a quote by uh, Aldo Leopold, which... One of my heroes. Uh, he, 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 uh, he says, a conservationist is one who humbly is aware that with each decision on the land, he is writing his signature on the face of that ecosystem. And so <clears throat> I think... That is so powerful. From a conservation standpoint, give me a... Give me a tangible example of something that you've seen. I mean, there's a lot of uh, things we could talk about specifically in Central Texas, but as a hunter, what is uh, what is like one of the most dramatic things that you can do to improve the ecosystem by managing land, whether it's thinking about exotic species or the degradation of riparian zones? I mean, what comes to your mind there? What have you seen? Yeah, you think about Texas, you know, I think about ranching and protecting those riparian zones, right? Like one of the ethos of our company is that we encourage and require that ranchers protect riparian zones and leave space for wildlife. 
those zones are sensitive and can easily be overgrazed and that basically pushes out wildlife and there's no habitat left for them. We talked about habitat as, as one of the big threats to wildlife. You know, specific examples about roles hunters play in in conservation, you know, one of the stories that's really cool, and I get back to my roots as a, a waterfowler, you look at waterfowl populations, wood ducks are a really cool example. And so wood ducks, like all these other species of animals we were talking about, were nearly extirpated, um, nearly went extinct. And one of the major downfalls to wood ducks, in addition to the market hunts, was loss of habitat. And so as the country was settled, we chopped down a lot of the old growth forests and wood ducks require cavities and old growth trees for nesting habitat. They don't make their own nest. They are literally looking for a place where a giant branch fell out of a tree, decayed and created a hole in the tree to lay their nest near water. And so as we cut down trees, we lose wood ducks. And so hunters realized this hundred years ago and started early conservation efforts to create fake nesting habitat or human-made nesting habitat in the form of wood duck boxes. And almost exclusively through human intervention, we were able to save wood ducks and now have a thriving population of wood ducks across the continent. That's something that hunters can be really proud of. And you can tell similar stories about other wildlife species and modern day examples of how certain populations are being managed intensively to rebuild population or not hunted at all. There are places in this country where hunters have thrown their hands up and said, hey, Electively, we're not going to hunt bighorn sheep here because this population needs help. Electively, we're not going to hunt mule deer here because they're in trouble. You know, we want our, we want this population here. We want them to recover. So we're hands off, you know, and we want to get involved in other ways in predator management or habitat creation. And to me, like that is like when people fully understand our role as humans in the ecosystem, that comes natural. It's like, it's not only do I care about the individual, the animal, but I care about the species and I care about the habitat. And because I'm invested in that, I want my signature that I'm leaving on this landscape to be a positive one. It's a full 360 involvement engagement in that whole cycle, whether it's financial, time, habitat, like you're vested in it, right? You're connected to it. Yeah, ab absolutely, man. And I know you have installed a couple of wood duck houses out on Rome Ranch and we've seen wood ducks in them and we've also seen little screech owls inhabiting them when the wood ducks aren't there. So, I mean, that's just one microcosm of an individual fabricating some boxes in their garage, putting them up, putting them up. It's almost like um, if you build it, they will come. And so you provided that critical habitat resource. I think another, uh, just one example that I think is powerful um, we have so many exotic species in Texas, you know, like, and, and it goes back to kind of maybe some of the um, trophy hunting where people, or even market hunting where people ship in, uh, for example, Axis deer from India, it's freaking things hunted by damn near tigers. Uh, and I didn't believe that. I thought that was just kind of like a cheeky thing that people used to say. But one day, uh, my six-year-old daughter went to the Fredericksburg library and brought, bought home a book about India. Indian tigers. And it was like all these badass pictures of like tigers in their natural habitat in India. And there was multiple pictures of the tigers slaying axis deer. So, so this deer now comes to central Texas, high game ranch, high fence so that it can be hunted year round. Um, but of course, mother nature will always blow down a fence. There will always be a big ass storm in this part of the world. Animals get out and then they thrive. 
and uh, they have a disproportionately negative impact on the ecosystem when our keystone species, when the wolves have been eradicated, because nothing can can harvest these things except humans. And so there's examples specifically where, where Kerr County Wildlife Management Area has done these research studies where they'll put uh, equal number of whitetail and axis deer in a high fence game ranch, and then they'll monitor and observe them. And what they notice is that the whitetail, uh, they can only survive on two classes of forage. So like the forbs and the browse, whereas a lot of the exotics in Texas can survive on three types of forage. So your, uh, your forbs, your browse, and then your grazing. And so they're, they're both equally consuming the forbs and browse. And then when the forbs and browse is gone, the native population plummets. Uh, whereas the invasives or the exotics, they can continue to thrive on another resource, which is the grazing, the grass. And so in those circumstances where they put equal whitetail, equal access, high fence, uh, over time, the whitetail population completely dies out, whereas the exotic species population takes over and thrives. And so that's just another example of how, as a hunter with a conservation mindset, you can actually restore habitat, restore resources for a native keystone species that has evolved with this ecosystem. Pretty good stuff, right? Yeah. There's so much there. I mean, I think about access here and how well adapted they are for this area, but what happens when it's seven degrees for a week? Oh boy, that's true. I feel like mother Spoiler nature alert. in the long run <laughs> will come around and equalize it. Yes. And our perspective is so short term that we don't see yes. how well adapted these animals are for certain regions. Exactly. Yeah. What Marshall's referring to is when we get these crazy, you know, hundred year snowstorms, uh, the exotic species populations get decimated. Whereas the, the native species just kind of like run into the storm as a bison metaphor, they get through it. They, they bunker down and they instinctively know what to do. So, um, as we kind of wrap this up, Marshall, I just, you know, in your perspective, in your opinion, um, why would you encourage someone to form that deeper connection um, to the meat that they consume or the land on which we all depend? Like, what what is the, why should someone care? Why should someone even consider maybe hunting as someone who's never done it before? I think the first question is like, do you think wildlife has a place on the planet? Right? I think most people would say Yes say, okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit and let's understand how they have a place on the planet today, tomorrow, in decades to come. And I think to, to really understand that, like you've got to get out and connect with them. You've got to see where they live, interact with them in their element. And I think hunting provides that opportunity, right? It, you engage with them being their wild self. You see them do things that most modern humans don't do. You see landscapes, you see sunsets, you see sunrises, you see snowstorms, you see, you get to experience like nature, right? And, and you participate in it. You're not an observer, you're a participant. And that experience will change your life. What you do with that life change, it's up to you. But I think hunting is a great vehicle to do that. I think it's not the only vehicle. Those animals or the, the examples we talked about with children and FFA, 4-H programs, I think that's another vehicle to connect with with what I view as the human experience and a consumer of animal products. Uh, but I think hunting will allow you to connect with the nature, nature in a way that like going on a hike, you, you miss that element, right? Cause to me, I love hiking, but it, it feels a little shallow versus when I'm hiking to hunt, right? Like I am engaged with the ecosystem around me. I, I can feel the sunset coming. 
when I'm hunting, when I'm hiking, I'm just an observer. And there's a difference. And that's something that I wish every experience, every human could experience. And I think their appreciation for wildlife and how wildlife actually works and how ecosystems actually work would be changed forever by observing and participating in those experiences. And it's so easy for people to knock hunting or villainize hunters when they don't have that perspective. But I'll tell you from experience that I don't know many people that understand how ecos ecosystems function and the reality of the day in and the day out livelihood that animals live out like hunters do. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love, I love the act of participating versus observing. And I think that is so important. Like one of my messages when I talk to people and, and they, they have these disillusions about food. Um, the first thing I encourage them to do is just go visit a farm, go visit a ranch or go hunt your own animal, because I think exactly what you're saying, forming that relationship and that connection is so enlightening and it elevates, it changes your mind forever and you will be more grounded, more connected to the cycles of nature as, as humans have been for millennia. It's like a, a, a way to return home to your full potential as a human. Well, that's powerful. I yeah. like that. Well, Marshall, my friend, thank you so much, sir. I hope, uh, I hope, I wish you well. And uh, maybe you'll add some new, uh, some new tattoos. Maybe we'll, we'll throw up some pictures of your tattoos because these are all animals that you have hunted, all North American species. What's, what's next on there, my friend? I don't know. I'm pretty satisfied with my, uh, my tattoo count right now. I haven't actually hunted all of these animals and it's not really like a trophy case, if you will. It's, they're just animals that inspire me that are native to the continent. Yeah. Um, pronghorn, grizzly bear, elk, bighorn sheep. Bison, obviously, mule deer, moose. Bison, think, not buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they just inspire me, you know, and I think I just hearken back to what it would have been like to see this country with Lewis and Clark yeah. and paddle a boat upstream across the continent and see what they saw. And that in some ways gives me hope, in some ways makes me sad, but it also just inspires me about like what role can we play to help our kids and grandkids see a piece of that. Yeah, I love it. Well, sir, thank you so much. I hope that in your next life, instead of moving forward in time, you get to be reincarnated in 1840 <laughs> and uh, maybe meet Lewis. Actually, yeah, hang out and see the passenger pigeons, see the bison herds, hear the wolves crying at night. But uh, until then, we need you to be alive so you can uh, be a part of this Force of Nature team. Appreciate that. Don't go anywhere yet. <laughs> Don't plan to. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Taylor. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had such a fun time recording it with Marshall. Again, this is our first attempt at leveling up this podcast production. We had a professional crew running audio, a professional crew running video. So if you are one of those people that watch podcast videos, I still don't understand how your brain works, but we want more and more people to be a part of this community, to be inspired, to share and sow these seeds of hope. And so welcome to Where Hope Grows. As I mentioned in the intro, this is going to be a three or maybe four part series. Coming up next, I have a guest, Monsal Denton, who's going to talk about the spiritual nature of hunting, connecting with the greater source. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I also have an idea to pursue an episode about 
the nutritional benefits of wild game meat, as well as hear from a world-class chef on how to best prepare, cook, and honor these amazing sources of nutrition with the highest respect to the culinary arts. Perhaps some taste testing will be involved in that episode. As always, I want to make sure to call out the sponsor of this podcast, which is going to be Force of Nature Meats. Myself, my wife, one of our best friends, Robbie Sanson, started this company. Golly, has it been four years now? I'm just going to bro math it and say four years. If you enjoy the content that we're creating, if you enjoy the topics that we're covering, if we're aligning with you on a spiritual, emotional level, we invite you to head over to www.forceofnature.com. Can you believe we got that domain? We actually got forceofnature.com. Um, and check out our selection of really amazing regeneratively sourced meats. We'll ship those to your door. You'll get a nice little note, some stickers, and uh, a postcard that has stories from Rome Ranch, which is really fun. I write those stories too, and they're always changing seasonally. And this is the part of the show where we conclude with an actual review on our Apple podcast platform. If you want me to read your words to our massive audience of who knows how big or how small, hopefully it's just not a bunch of Russian hackers. Uh, Here we go. This one's kind of a ringer because it is entitled Hope Surrounds Us. And it's by LYSKO83 underscore train to live and this is a ringer because this is actually my friend landon so he says uh where hope grows is one of my favorite podcasts to date because taylor is such a genuine steward to all things that he encounters in life the concept of hope tied into so many avenues of life is brought to light through the most important foundation of hope the soil this podcast helps people understand that our soil is the building block to life and all should listen because humans are change makers Hope surrounds us, but we have to be willing to access it. And the best way is eating foods that grow from soil, stewarded by incredible people like Rome Ranch. Good food can change one's life. Exclamation, exclamation. Landon, my brother, thank you, sir. You were absolutely spot on when you said that good food can change one's life. And to the um, opposite effect, really shitty food can really ruin one's life now something that my guest marshall mentioned in the podcast it's kind of a an important part that i want to leave you as a parting message and that is every time you consume meat you are inadvertently indirectly pulling a trigger and i think it's important for us to recognize this because it adds humility and ultimately gratitude for the animals that have sacrificed their existence, these sentient beings that are living complex, important lives that have gifted us with the opportunity to live our best lives. Farewell, friends.